This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is actually going on? Well, what the hell is going on is Boris Johnson is gone. <laughs> the, uh, bye, Boris. The British, bye, Boris. The, uh, the British Prime Minister has stepped down. He's not actually gone. He's still in office pending the election of a successor, so he'll still be prime minister for a few months, lame duck prime minister, but he is, he's leaving office. I will tell you that when the news broke, the first thought that came into my head was, boy, is Joe Biden lucky we don't have a parliamentary system here in the United States of America where his own party can throw him out of office because they'd probably do that right now if they could. Not if number two was Kamala Harris, they wouldn't. Well, I don't know. They've I mean, got a big selection. They got they got a big problem. So like you know, there was a Reuters Ipsos poll that showed fifty eight percent of Britons wanted Johnson to step down. Well, there's a new Harvard Harris poll out that finds seventy one percent of Americans don't think Biden should run for a second term, and only thirty percent of Democrats would vote for him in a Democratic presidential primary. So uh, he's lucky we don't have no confidence votes in America because I think they'd throw him out right now for Bernie or somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, perhaps we would be happier with a parliamentary system. On the other hand, we did fight a, you know, revolutionary war so that we wouldn't have to have that or a king. And so I guess we shouldn't be that envious of the Brits. It really does seem kind of crazy over there. Although I'll say this, it one thing that really is striking is just how Boris Johnson went looking for trouble. How do you mean? You know, first of all, he puts in place COVID rules, which all you know leaders do, and it's a variety of lockdown, and you can't meet with X number of people, and you know, but Boris is special, you know, kind of like most of our politicians are special. They don't need to wear masks. The little people need to wear masks, and Boris had the same attitude. So there he was at number ten, having a brilliant time being PM. And he had a party while everybody else was in lockdown. Dude, what is wrong with you? Then he gets caught. Th that sounds a lot like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who, uh, you know, famously, while everyone else was under lockdown, he had a maskless dinner at French Laundry. Somehow he survived, but Bojo didn't. Yes. Well, l let's put it this way. Gavin Newsom thinks he's going to be running for president and thinks he's an electable. <laughs> and, and, I, and I beg to differ. But then what that wasn't enough. He nominates somebody with the infelicitous name of Pincher uh, for a senior position. And it turns out that Pincher, in fact, went and got super drunk and was pinching and, and, and groped <laughs> a bunch of men. And Boris said he didn't know about it, but he did. And that's also a problem. So, you know, all of these things are sort of inexplicable to me. And then on top of that, he governed from the left. The Wall Street Journal had a great editorial on this called The Rise and Fall of Boris Johnson. And they say he campaigned from the right, but governed from the left. Britain, in the midst of an inflation crisis made worse by Johnson, he raised payroll tax by 2.5% to fund the National Health Service, which is their system of national health care, something we don't even have here. He froze personal income tax brackets, so households face a substantial tax increase as inflation hits 
uh, their earnings. He refused to cut the consumption tax or green levies on gasoline, diesel, and household energy, and he imposed a windfall profits tax on energy companies that threatens investment in new supplies from the North Sea. So he, he pursued a fairly radical climate agenda, probably a more aggressive climate agenda than the Biden administration has, raised taxes. And Britain has inflation right now. You know, we're we're complaining about inflation of, uh, you know, eight and a half percent. They've got inflation of 11 percent in the UK. So this was it was sparked by political political controversy and by his lies, but ultimately people weren't happy with the direction of the government and the direction of the country, just like they're not happy here. I think that at the end of the day is the problem for Boris Johnson. It's not every tiny little thing. It's not Partygate by itself. It's not Pinchergate by itself. It's not Boris being Boris by itself. It's that plus governing from the left, plus inflation, plus strikes, plus an air of just sort of chaos in the UK that I think people don't elect Tories for. And I think, quite frankly, he's suffering from the same. I mean, I made a joke at the beginning about Joe Biden, but he's suffering from the same headwinds that Joe Biden is today. One of the reasons why Joe Biden is so unpopular today is because he doesn't seem to realize that Americans didn't vote against Trumpism during the last election. They voted against Trump. They voted against the chaos. They voted against the division and all the madness of the, of the Trump era. But they didn't vote for higher taxes. They didn't vote for more regulation. They didn't vote for an open border. They didn't vote for all these left-wing policies that Biden has unleashed on the country, $1.9 trillion in spending, which led to this massive inflation that we're experiencing. They didn't vote for $5 gas. And so they're both unpopular because they're pursuing far left policies that are not in keeping with what most people want and that also have disastrous results. All of that together is a recipe for disaster. And yes, you know, you and I are obviously a lot closer to the disaster that Joe Biden faces, but the reality is those are bad headwinds for even the most skilled of politicians. And it turns out that despite his charm and his shaggy hair and his various children by various wives, (laughs) Boris Johnson didn't have what it took. There were a lot of people who were unhappy with him. They would have been fine with nominating a sex abuser and having parties. But uh, when it came to violations of conservative orthodoxy, when it came to governing, that was too much. Now, let's in, in Boris's defense, he was absolutely a courageous leader when it came to Ukraine. He really was. He was, the, I think, the first leader to go to Kiev and meet with Zelensky and walked around outside in Kiev talking to the people. I mean, that picture of him during the walkabout was really extraordinary. So, you know, full credit to him for being, you know, the kind of leader that we wish we had when it came to Ukraine. But what brought him down was a lot of things that had nothing to do with Ukraine, nothing to do with world leadership, had to do with domestic politics and domestic policy. Yeah, and that's right. You know, look, Boris Johnson was our annual dinner speaker a few years ago. He had more groupies in Washington, D.C. It was embarrassing. Young men and women lining up to meet him. You know, clearly the guy has a lot of a lot of charisma. Clearly he's very smart. But, you know, he's got these sort of horrible, fatal flaws and one of them is, seems to be not having incredibly firm principles. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's that can do it. Uh, though lots of people survive in politics without having principles, and he rose pretty high up. But look, neither you or I are experts on British politics, and I know many of our listeners watching the fall from the distance of Boris Johnson are wondering why it happened and how it happened and what this all means for us in America and for the battle in Ukraine. So. Why don't we bring in someone who knows something about British politics to tell us what the hell's going on? I don't understand, Mark. Why, why are we doing this differently than we always do? <laughs> 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 but seriously, folks, we were lucky enough to persuade Alan Mendoza to join us. He's a good friend, not just to, to me and Mark, but also to AEI. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Henry Jackson Society, which is Britain's leading think tank. It fights for alliance principles. It's uh, it's pro you know pro free enterprise, pro free trade, pro America, and in other words, uh, really a great fit for us. But he also has a very firm grip on just what the hell is going on in the UK, and it seems to be a bit of a mess. So we're lucky to have him. Here's our interview. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. So Americans don't follow British politics all that closely, but we all saw the news that Boris Johnson left office. You give us the, you know, the breakdown. What happened? Why was he ousted from the prime ministership? Well, he hasn't quite left office yet, of course. He's uh, hanging around till uh, a new uh, leader of the Conservative Party is chosen, who will then become prime minister. But why has he gone? I think there are two or three reasons, and it depends on, I suppose, who you ask as to what which reason is the most important. The first is, of course, that he um, had broken the law, basically. So he set the laws during the coronavirus crisis, which, of course, told people they couldn't gather under certain circumstances. And it was then discovered latterly that he himself had broken uh, those laws. And that, of course, was not a good look, particularly as uh, many citizens had, of course, had relatives they couldn't visit who were dying, funerals they couldn't attend, all this sort of thing. And, you know, number 10 appeared to be a constant party uh, during the process. So clearly, that shattered a bond of trust. There were other sort of ethical issues that then were piled on top of that. Uh, a number of MPs who were involved in, you know, what you might call sleaze, this wonderful term that we have to uh, be a catch-all for any kind of crises. Uh, and that kept on a Tom coming, and it appeared that, you know, it, it just wouldn't end under Boris in that sort of way. And I think that probably fundamentally severed, if you like, the bond of trust that Boris had with the British public. He was a politician who had always been able to reach out directly to people. He won the last election because he was Boris, basically, not because he was necessarily a Conservative, but because they trusted him. That trust had gone as a result of those two issues. You saw that in recent by-elections, sort of special election, and also local election results. And for his MPs, I think it was less about that, perhaps, although some of them were motivated ethically, but probably more about the fact they felt the government was drifting. The government had been drifting for some time. It was unclear what Boris's agenda was, if he even had an agenda, to be honest. And there were some murmurings that he was leading uh, the Conservatives down a very high tax and high spend uh, path with no sign of an end. And I think uh, all those three issues came together to basically uh, force him out. I mean, he did win a no confidence vote earlier in June, but I think more sleaze came out and I think people felt we just can't deal with this anymore let's topple him and, and that's why he's gone. So first of all Alan thank you thank you for joining us I know how busy you are and thank you for putting up with the background noise where I am because I'm in the middle of a cafe but it was important that we talked to you about this so here's the the $64,000 question from from our end why is Boris such a liar? 
<laughs> well, let's put it this way. Look, Boris Johnson is a known commodity. He was a known commodity when he came into office. Uh, it wasn't as if he suddenly developed character traits that people were now surprised at, basically. Uh, the reality was he came into office fully formed. Uh, he had all these, you know, very convoluted personal issues he had uh, with, you know, uh, sort of relationships and uh, sort of his, you know, kind of checkered working history. Um, he had this issue about, you know, could you actually trust him? But of course, on the other side, he had these undoubted political gifts, not much stuck to him. Um, he was seen as, you know, kind of a politician who transcended politics in that sort of way, really reached out. And I think you've got those two things working together. Boris, you know, I suppose in a way, like Donald Trump, I don't want to compare the two because there's big differences. But, you know, they came into office fully formed. There was no doubt that they were going to behave the way they were going to behave come what may. Uh, anyone who believed otherwise was deluding themselves. And for a while it worked. You could even argue in the US it worked for a while. Um, and then it didn't work. Um, and, you know, it didn't work because fundamentally that I suppose the personal flaws came to the fore and made it impossible for, for them to continue in office. I mean, the other big complaint, of course, in addition to sort of these, let's call them peccadilloes nicely, was what the Wall Street Journal called governing from the left. Is that a fair cop? Is that a fair accusation? Well, yes, that's why I was saying at the start, I think among the Conservative MPs, the people who actually determine if he stays in power or not, internally within the party, there was a sense of drift into leftism, for want of a better word. Um, and I think the reality is that Boris was never an ideological politician. I mean, most famously, when it came to the Brexit referendum, he wrote two letters, one in favour of Brexit and one against it, and undenied about which one to send and which campaign to attach himself to, until he worked out it was better for Boris to be on the Brexit side. So he doesn't, he never had any principles, essentially, in terms of political now, you could argue that's a very classically conservative position, not to have any principles. Uh, uh, you know, it's about pragmatism, it's about getting the job done. But I think, obviously, that in the course of his premiership, uh, the tax burden became vast. Uh, we're currently being taxed at the highest level since the 1950s in the UK. Um, spending has ballooned. Now, of course, part of that was down to COVID and the public expenditure that came out then. But at the same time, there was no census was being rolled back. There were tax increases happening. And as a result, I think, you know, the backbenchers and others in, in government went, what's the difference fundamentally between you and a Labour government? Now, again, I don't think this was necessarily conscious on Boris's part. I just think it's where he ended up getting dragged. Um, his former chief of staff, Dominic Cummings, likens him to an out-of-control shopping trolley. Uh, but you just don't know which way he's going to head and he appears, you know, constantly out of control. I don't think it's quite that bad, but in reality, there was no North Star to which he was attached to uh, after the Brexit issue. And as a result, you could see the drift in government policy. I want to get into the uh, substance of it, but before we leave Partygate, you know, we had a politician here in the United States, Governor Gavin Newsom in California, who was famously seen having a maskless dinner at French Laundry. And there was an attempt to drive him out of office. There was a referendum, uh, a recall election, and he survived it. You know, I'm interested in why Partygate brought down Boris Johnson, whereas it hasn't brought down politicians here in the US. The resistance among conservatives to COVID lockdowns is intense in, in the UK as it is here. And is that what really like people were so angry about being locked down and they're opposed to lockdowns and that was what did it? Or what's what's the difference between these cases? Yeah, I, I don't think it was actually part of it that, that led fundamentally to Boris losing control. I think it was one of the factors. But I, I think had it just been part of it and everything else was going really well, I don't think he'd have been uh, driven from power. Because, you know, for everyone who 
thought this was a major issue. There were many people who didn't think it was a major issue and were just happy to move on. I think, as with always, if you get a drip drip of things and you know this is one of them and there are other issues coming to the fore, eventually you get carried away by the by the sheer force of the opposition against you. And I think that's what actually happened to Boris. This alone wouldn't have been the issue. But I think the, the view was the British Conservatives were not as anti-lockdown um, as, say, America conservatives on this side. There was, to be honest, there was broad acceptance of the lockdown, at least at the start, uh, as to how this worked. Very, very little opposition to to that as an idea and very little opposition within the Conservative Party to it. I think this probably taps into a different British trait, which is a sense of decency and fair play. The British people are very fair-minded people and they're very prepared to accept sacrifices and behave stoically in this way. What they don't like is the idea that there's special treatment being given to X, Y or Z. And of course, in this case, the person getting the special treatment was the person setting the rules, locking the rest of them up. So from this perspective, it seemed highly you know, unfortunate that, uh, you know, that there was sort of this drinking culture in number 10 and all sorts of things happening there, uh, whereas the rest of the country wasn't able to, to do you know, really serious things like see elderly relatives, dying relatives, you know, go to funerals along those lines. And I think that, you know, that was probably the sense of decency and fair play. That's what explains the anger on the side of you know, some of the British public here. So, as Mark said, we, we all want to get into the substance of this, but I still want to stay on the, not, not the appearances, not Partygate, not, you know, all of the other rubbish, but the fact that we've seen this almost clown car of Tory leaders in which, you know, one gets out and then he's in and then another one's out and another one's in and then another one's out and another one's in. What's going on with the Conservative Party? Well, you could call it a clown car or you could go, actually, it's a very effective way of maintaining power by constantly rotating your leader um, and therefore people thinking you have a new government in place, which, of course, you do if you have a new prime minister. And if you think about it, had David Cameron still been around now, what is it, 20? He'd have been around for 12 years. It'd have been the 12th year of his premiership. People would have been thoroughly sick of him at that point in time. You know, Theresa May would have been in year six, probably sick of her, you know, and, and on you would have gone in that sort of way. Instead, the party... Frank, well, look, Cameron went because he wanted to go. He wasn't forced out. He wanted to go, and that was that. Theresa May was forced out because she didn't deliver Brexit, basically, and that was the end of her. And Boris Johnson was, for, you know, been forced out because of a variety of different sins that he's committed or, you know, sort of felt in that way. Ultimately, though, it comes down to the Conservative Party is the most successful political party in the Western Hemisphere. And the reason it is so successful is because it is utterly ruthless when it comes to uh, defenestrating leaders who it feels is not going to lead them to victory at the next general election. And when the Conservative Party doesn't do that, for example, with John Major in the 1990s, although, you know, frankly, you'd have had to have a saint to replace him to have won that election in 97, you see the results. The results are battering in that kind of way. So the party's been successful because it does replace uh, its leaders when it feels there is an you know, opportunity to do so. And in this case, another one has bitten the dust. Wall Street Journal talked about how he campaigned from the right, but was governing from the left. For our American listeners who, who have a view of conservatism through the prism of the Republican Party here, is the Conservative Party actually conservative? <laughs> the Conservative Party, um, you know, has obviously different wings in it, much like the Republican Party has. You know, that phrase, you know, rhinos, Republicans in name only, which is a you know, pejorative one for the more centrist, old Rockefeller types, you know, that sort of Republican. You know, they exist in the Conservative Party. You've got the one, they're called One Nation types. You've got the Thatcherites. You've got the compassionate conservatives. You've got different tribes, basically, who come together, as you must do 
in a majoritarian system like ours, where you're not basically catering to every whim in a separate party as you would do in a proportional system. So from our perspective, of course, you've got, you know, kind of hardcore conservatives on the one hand who'd be perfectly at home in the American Republican Party. Uh, You've got also people who, frankly, would be Democrats uh, in the US. It's just our, I suppose, the spectrum, the political spectrum is calibrated differently in the UK. And therefore, you get a much wider spectrum in uh, any given political party. And of course, your aim in this, because we do a first past the post system like you do, is that you're trying to attract as many people into your tent versus the other big party's tent, um, because they will be trying to expand their area as much as possible as well from, in their case, hard left, you know, socialists to, you know, to Blairites in the in the middle. And it's, of course, the people who tend to be able to get the most people into their tent who win general elections in our in our system. So there's a reason for why the parties are, if you like, coalitions of uh, interest like that and why they're not, you know, sort of pure in conservatism and tooth and claw. Which tribe is ascendant today in the in the Conservative Party? Well, that's is it the correct. Thatcherites? Is it a more uh, isolationist uh, wing? What wing is the ascendant wing right now? So isolationism isn't an issue at all in British politics, at least on the Conservative side. We had, of course, Jeremy Corbyn fairly recently, who was uh, extremely isolationist, but that was a different uh, case on, on Labour side. So that's not an issue. What you've got, basically, is where do you stand, essentially, on the, the tax and spend questions? The Thatcherite. There's a battle right now going on for who will win the party leadership, because there are a number of people who uh, would definitely fall on the Thatcherite agenda, um, you know, of, of tax cuts and smaller state versus others who prefer the, the bigger states. And if you look at the last three British prime ministers, uh, conservative prime ministers, they've all come from the, if you like, bigger state uh, area, even though David Cameron was responsible for austerity politics, the state was hardly, you know, kind of shrunk during his time. Uh, Theresa May was a technocrat, essentially. Um, and um, you know, Boris was an expansionist, if you like, in this sort of way. I mean, you haven't had a Thatcherite uh, as prime minister since Thatcher. So, Alan, I have a question for you that does not come from my heart, as you will, as you will hear. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but sitting and reading the, the hot takes uh, on Boris Johnson's demise, one of them, well, it's stuck in my crawl, but I'm not, I'm not as well equipped as you are to blow it out of the water. So here's this great line. Why did Boris Johnson's colleagues remove him from office? They removed him from office because he was a liar about Brexit and Partygate just confirmed it. Well, a liar about Brexit, that's an odd one. Um, Why would he be a liar about Brexit? I mean, he basically piloted through um, a hard Brexit deal, which was more than most people could have imagined, uh, you know, would have been achieved you know, in a Brexit agreement. I'm not sure why he'd be a liar on Brexit. I mean, on Partygate, sure. I think, um, you know, that bit's been well established. But, you know, nobody nobody denies that Boris delivered Brexit and a harder Brexit than anyone else probably would have been able to deliver, number one. Number two, um, as you may be aware, he, he was about to go to war with the EU on the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, the government had already started the process of passing legislation to basically tear that up. And you could say he lied to the EU over Brexit. I mean, he said, well, we would obey the Northern Ireland Protocol and we'd, we'd do that. And of course, that's not what he intended to do from day one, it appears. He was always keen to tear that up at some point and thought it could be renegotiated and go down that route. So unless the lie was in that regard, that he signed a document that he knew he would break, I, I'm a bit puzzled about the whole, you know, he lied over Brexit. Certainly, his colleagues wouldn't have removed him over that. They would have removed him over, you're not delivering Brexit, but he did deliver Brexit. So one way he was unable to deliver on Brexit is, I think, partly our fault here in the States, which is that there was no real 
effort to negotiate and, and conclude a free trade agreement between the United States and, and the UK, which seems to be like it would be a two-minute decision and the first minutes for coffee. We have like economies. You don't have any of the difficulties you have when you're doing a free trade agreement with Mexico or a smaller economy. Why has there not been a free trade agreement? And is it our fault or is it Boris's? Well, I, I'm, I believe, on you know, having sort of you know, been party to some of the information here, that I think it's pretty much an American decision not to do it. Uh, you guys have basically, for various reasons, under Trump, firstly, and then under Biden, have decided not to prioritize this as something you want to pursue. As you say, it should be pretty easy to conclude. There's certainly no lack of desire on this side of the Atlantic to conclude such a deal. Um, it's just that there's been no reciprocity on the US side. And as a result, it's very difficult, obviously, to get a deal if one side isn't even interested in sitting down and chatting about it. I think the reasons were different. I think in Trump's case, um, he was, you know, kind of hedging bets for various reasons and wanting other uh, concessions. And Biden's case, he doesn't like, you know, bilateral trade deals. He prefers a multilateral kind. Uh, so there was all this talk then, oh, maybe we, we go in through the Pacific deal, you know, we can, we can sign up to that and we'll get a free trade deal through the back door. Uh, but again, that's a slow process to get there. But it's certainly not for one to try and, on our part. Uh, the only possible thing that might have uh, been an issue there would, of course, be the EU has uh, issues with uh, uh, plenty American produce in particular. There might have been some concern there not to rock the European boat. But all, all that I've seen has been that we've been trying to push it for years, even you know, from 2016 onwards, and have essentially been rebuffed. Is it fair then to say that the US is in part responsible for Boris's fall? Because that would have helped him deliver on the promise of Brexit for the British people by, you know, I mean, the British economy is struggling, your inflation is higher than ours. If we had included a free trade deal, maybe he could have delivered some of the benefits of Brexit in a way that would have helped keep him in power. Well, much as we love uh, you all in the US and much as we're aware of your economic power and might, I mean, the reality is that the even a free trade deal, you know, would not have had more than a minor effect on our economy. The reality is, as with everyone else, we're in the cost of living crisis. We have various problems, you know, kind of uh, uh, brought to the fore in the economy. And, I, you know, to, to blame it on the Americans would be a very, very um, uh, novel and brave idea, I think, when in reality, there were many other reasons for why Boris went and this would not have saved him. It, you know, it might have been nice to have had it. Of course, it would have been nice to have it. It'd be still nice to have it. Um, and maybe the new prime minister can deliver it. But uh, it, I don't think it would have made any difference to his ultimate survival. He, you know, he hasn't gone because of Brexit. Well, I'm waiting to hear this from him now that you suggest that it's completely untrue and would be not very nice to blame us for it. So let's just talk for a moment about Ireland. I don't think that, well, honestly speaking, I, don't, I was about to blame other people, but I don't actually understand what was going on there. I understand that there was an agreement that made it possible for Brexit, but why was Boris walking away from this? Was it absolutely necessary? Is the next Tory PM going to do the same thing? Explain to explain to not very bright me what what's going <laughs> on. Well the, <laughs> well, the trouble is it is a most arcane issue, and you'll start getting into all kinds of uh, you know sort of uh, confused realities. So the base problem is this: the deal that we signed to leave the EU left Northern Ireland in a limbo state. Why did it leave Northern Ireland in a limbo state? Well, Northern Ireland shares a land border with the Republic of Ireland. The Republic of Ireland remains in the EU. Therefore, for there to be frictionless trade and no border controls, uh, because of course Brexit should have meant a border going up on the Northern Irish-Irish border, but that would of course have impacted on the Downing Street Declaration, all those peace deals that were done, which said no border in, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Of course, nobody wants to return to terrorism and violence in that respect. So in order to 
prevent that border going up. The EU said, fine, you can leave, but Northern Ireland has to stay within the single market, which is, of course, this EU construct where you can trade freely. And as a result, uh, Northern Ireland has no border with the Republic of Ireland, but it does have now a technical border with the rest of the United Kingdom, because the EU said, well, the rest of the UK, i.e. Scotland, England and Wales, it's left the single market, and therefore we must have customs checks between you and Northern Ireland. Um, so the problem therein lies that Northern Ireland is now being treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom. And if you are a unionist, and don't forget the Conservative Party's official name is a Conservative and Unionist Party, um, if you want to keep the United Kingdom together, you can't have a differentiation between the parts of the UK. And as a result, you know, because the Ulster Unionists in Northern Ireland, these are, of course, the people who want to stay part of the UK as opposed to those who uh, want to join the Republic of Ireland, um, because they have basically also made this a massive issue of pride and they feel less British now because of this, and they're also therefore frustrating the creation of a parliament uh, in uh, in Northern Ireland saying, we're not going to join this until you end this terrible you know, injustice to Northern Ireland. That is basically forcing the British government to act and try and tear out the protocol. Its line is, look, the peace of Northern Ireland is now under threat, not by putting up a border, but by you know, having this frictionless border and having a border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. So we, we need to change that and work out a way where we can, we can of course, understand that there ought to be customs checks uh, for goods going into the Republic of Ireland. But if, if, if a good is passing from London to Belfast, why does it need a custom check? It's going to stay in Belfast, which is still part of the UK and is still also you know, part of the Brexited UK. So there shouldn't be any checks. And that's where it founders, basically, on this very, very difficult point about um, you can't really square that circle. The EU either have to give in or Britain has to give in. And I, you know, neither are in a mood to give in. So walk us through the, uh, the race coming up to replace Boris Johnson. Who are the leading candidates? What, what factions of the party uh, do they represent? And will the Thatcherites prevail or will the sort of the big government conservatives prevail? Well, it's a really interesting one because almost every minute someone else joins the race. So we've now got, I think it's 11 candidates. This is, of course, you know, recorded in advance of when your show goes out. So uh, you, we may have had the winnow down slightly. The reality is you've got, you know, obviously, some candidates are in the race um, to boost their profile. They don't really think they're going to win, but they want to boost their profile just as if you make a presidential run, you're hoping that you might be in the window next time round, or you'll be put in the cabinet if uh, if you win. So a number of candidates are there uh, just for just for that, basically. Um, and then you come down to well, who, what are the factions? You know, all the factions have got someone in the game, basically. Um, if you like, the sort of tax cutters have uh, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, who's probably the front runner among them. Probably, I say, not definitely, probably. Uh, you've got Nadim Zahawi, the current chancellor, who's just put into place last week after all the, you know, toing and froing. You've got Sajid Javid, um, who is a former chancellor and a former health secretary. Uh, they are probably the three main candidates on the, um, on the, you know, sort of the most obvious people who who might win through on that side. Um, on the more, that's the that's the Thatcherite wing. That's the Thatcherite wing of the party. Um, and then okay. you've got sort of um, the One Nationists, or if you like, you know, not One Nationists. I mean, Rishi Sunak is a leading exponent, it seems, of no tax cuts. No one quite knows what Rishi Sunak stands for. He, of course, has been the Chancellor for the two years before. I can tell you, I can tell you what Rishi Sunak what stands, stands for. for? I, I he love stands for Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Okay, interesting. 
But certainly he's been quite bold in not wanting to cut taxes. And of course, he led this expansion with Boris of the economy, so you know, of the state. So clearly he can't be a tax cutter because that wouldn't, you know, be, be consistent. So he must represent, and he's the leading candidate, obviously, probably of all the candidates, and the leading candidate of uh, you know, of, of that side of the debate. Um, and then there's some there are some interesting uh, wildcard candidates who are sort of straddle different camps. Penny Mordaunt. Um, is a former, briefly she was Defence Secretary, but she's also you know, been a minister in many other places. Um, she's probably, um, again, I'm not quite sure where she stands on these issues, but she's been campaigning for quite some time uh, and uh, you know, is, is looking to make a name. Tom Tugganhat, who I think uh, Danny will know certainly, is of course big on foreign policy, but he's also very much on the One Nation side of the party. And the other one I'd, I'd you know, kind of point out is a chap called Grant Shapps. He's been in the cabinet a long time as a transport secretary. Uh, would be coming from the middle of the party, definitely. And, you know, it sort of would bring experience and, you know, he would say competence and campaigning and communication as the force. You've got a whole lot of candidates who might uh, well be able to win it. The reality is the party is very divided at the moment. There is no obvious successor. That's the thing to take away from this. I think we'll find the first vote will, you know, will have a lot of candidates clustered around very similar figures. And it's going to be a question of horse trading. It's going to be a question of who can promise who what and who figures their chances are best maximised by switching sides or going, uh, you know, it's going to be a quite a quite a bloody affair, should we say, I think, to get to this final final two, who then go to the Conservative Party membership, who will then decide who uh, will be the party uh, leader. And I think part of the tactics will be, there probably will be a stop Rishi Sunak uh, attempt so you know much as you have you know sometimes stop x and y candidates from winning there'll be people who will try and probably club together around that uh, and the rishi camp will want somebody like um like i forgot to mention jeremy hunt of course the four who, who ran second last time uh jeremy hunt would be the kind of person rishi sunak would like to face in the final because he would regard jeremy hunt as you know being to the left of him now i'm not sure that's correct but he'd probably pitch it that way so there you know there's numerous sort of machinations are going to happen over the course of the next two weeks to get to these final two, and then they'll have to go to the party membership to decide. Okay, Alan. So, what do you think? The UK is is notorious for having punters and betting odds and everything else on everything you could possibly imagine, including the race to be Prime Minister. If you had to put money down right now, who are you putting it on? Well, if I had to put money down right now, if you forced me to do it, I would say, look, Rishi Sunak looks to have you know, the most people behind him right now. But I'm going to be you know, quite honest about it. I don't think anyone can predict this race. This isn't like 2019. It was obvious that Boris was going to ascend to the throne. This isn't like 2016, when it was obvious that Theresa May was most likely to get there. This is a genuinely open contest. Okay, it's very, you know, very unlikely, I think, uh, that it's going to be a walkover for uh, for Rishi Sunak. And in fact, I think, like I said, there's a good chance that he will be stopped. But we won't be able to note that and understand that until some way into this process. So making a prediction now is is not an informed betting prediction at all. Basically, you know, sticking your finger in the air and going, hmm, at the moment it blows this way, but next week it might blow that way. Talk to us about what this means for Ukraine, because Boris, of course, was famous for his walkabout in Kiev with Zelensky and his strong, strong support for for the Ukrainians in the face of Russian aggression. Is everybody who's running pretty much in the same position when it comes to Ukraine, or are there are there any wets when it comes to Ukraine to use 
the phrase no, no. you like to use over there. Yes, it's a very good one. <laughs> but on this one, no, I think, look, this has been a universally popular policy. By the way, across the political spectrum, the Labour Party also and the Liberal Democrats have embraced this as well. Um, this is, you know, Ukraine is not a dividing factor in British politics. I'm not saying it won't be, you know, say in six months' time, but right now there is a general consensus, of course, uh, that we should be backing Ukraine to the hilt. It's very important. And given that many of the people, you know, running in this race are, you know, were in Boris's cabinet, it'd be surprising if they had major differences on this issue, given the plenty of opportunity to, to have had those uh, discussions. I think there is a focus. Some some candidates have been focusing on defence spending more than others. Um, I think it's notable that uh, Nadim Zahawi, Grant Chaps and Jeremy Hunt have all said we need to be at around the 3% level or worse that effect of our GDP on defence. That's a big big increase on what we've what we're doing at the moment others have been more circumspect on that score but certainly on the ukraine issue uh, there's no dividing line between the candidates so just my last question widening the aperture here you know in america we talk about the republican wing of the republican party uh, it's even more obvious in the uk and what's happened to the conservative wing of the conservative party why is it that high taxes and you know sort of wets as as Mark very nicely said, are, are dominating the running. How has this happened? Well, I think part of it is that, as I mentioned earlier, the Conservative Party is a very broad coalition of interests. And if you go back to, you know, to sort of Conservative philosophy, and that may be actually an oxymoron, but, um, but if you go back to the ideas of early Conservatives, it's about not having an ideology. It's about very much about the pragmatic approach to what is, you know, in the best interest of society and the country and how we, how we manage this. And in a sense, the if you like, the Thatcher revolution was the aberration uh, in the in the Conservative Party's evolution. That wing of the party had never before uh, had, if you like, a, a major role. And you know, and although it has had an important role since, it hasn't really um, had the levers of power since that time. So I think it's uh, you know, look, you have to look at it more in historical context. That part of the Conservative Party has, has rarely. Been, uh, been, you know, at the fore of things. It normally comes to the fore when there is a crisis at hand. I mean, clearly there is a crisis going on right now, obviously with the cost of living issue. With but Alan, uh, sorry, I said that was my last question, but I lied. But there is a crisis. I mean, when you look at the UK right now, mm-hmm. it feels like I don't want to exaggerate and say it feels like 1968, but it's not far off. You're talking about taxes out the yin yang, British Airways threatening to strike, rail strikes left, right, and centre. I mean. It feels like there is a crisis. But that's that's the point I was coming to at the end. It was basically, you know, we've got a, a, a crisis now. It's not, you're right, it's probably 1968, but not 1978. And that's probably the big difference between the two moments, basically. If it was 1978, this wouldn't be a debate anymore. It'd be like, we're all heading that direction. I think you've got a number of leadership candidates who say, yes, this is too much, as you've just pointed out. This looks like a crisis, and it is and it is not the way to solve it. It's not by more state spending, it's by less, and by cutting taxation and freeing people to once again be productive along those lines. Now, the issue faces, you've got a whole mix of MPs in the House of Commons. Many of those MPs who were elected, for example, last time around in, in, in what's called the Red Wall, these were the former Labour seats that flipped the Conservatives for the first time last time. Those MPs are not a million miles away, perhaps, from the from the Labour people they defeated, which would have been high state spending, high tax, because that's what those areas are interested in. So the Conservative Party today is a very complicated patchwork quilt of different kinds of Conservatives. And 
we will know the answer to your question, what's happened to the Conservative wing of the Conservative Party in about you know two weeks' time and maybe just a little bit after that when the, when the, when the party membership vote, and they will determine who and what sort of conservatism uh, will be in the vogue in the UK uh, for the next few years. Exit question from me, just because we're, we got into this debate, is it 1968, 1978? Wall Street Journal has a story today. Lead is Britain's next prime minister will have to contend with challenges in governing the country that are arguably unequaled since at least 1979, when Margaret Thatcher took office facing galloping inflation and battle with powerful trade unions. Do you agree with that? What What are the big issues that the next prime minister will face? And is there any chance of a Thatcher? I don't, I don't mean like from the, from the wing, but a, a Thatcherite leader emerging to take on these challenges and, and really have the kind of long run and, and success that she had uh, before well, she finally was yes, succumbed. I mean, the, the problem of Conservatives first you face is they have been in power for 12 years. So that already is a lengthy bit. Normally, you don't last that long. There's a, there's a revolving power door and you, know, you move over. So the idea you're now going to have another 10 years of Conservative rule, I think, is unlikely just on the nature of how the pendulum of politics works. The swing will happen. However, I, I don't think things are as bad as 1979. The country is not fundamentally ungovernable like it appeared to be in 79. The union's power was smashed by Margaret Thatcher. Yes, there have been some strikes, but this is the last of the unions. The rail union is the last of the big unions, uh, basically, to, to, to be around. No other industry has unions as powerful as that. And the government's been fairly firm on that, saying we're not, we're not going to cave in on you and we're going to keep on fighting uh, you know, to, to an end point. So I, I think... It's, and, and equally, the inflation issue, of course, there's inflation. But we know why the inflation is coming. This is not inflation at this moment in time that's being caused by domestic demand. It's inflation being caused by external factors. Now, it could become domestic inflation, of course, if we give in to all these pay uh, increases. Once you start having 7 to 10% pay increase across the board, then yes, you've got an inflation problem. And to get that, to get rid of that from the system is difficult. But the government's trying to maintain pay discipline. Uh, so far, I didn't see any reason why the next prime minister will change that and will indeed probably have an opportunity to come, you know, to, to try and fight that. At the same time, there is going to be a pushback from people uh, domestically going, the cost of living is unsustainable at the moment. And if you think about it, you know, in historical terms, it is remarkably high right now. So, the, you know, there have to be answers to that. And, you know, one answer is to cut tax, which is you know, what I think the Conservative Party obviously should be doing. Another is to, you know, bloat state spending. But that is not going to, that will probably, you know, sort of uh, lead to the wrong kind of consequences. So, yes, there are big challenges economically. It's not like 1979. And you just need someone resolute to come in who can provide some vision and leadership. And I don't actually fundamentally think at that point that we're going to be in, a, in a, an ungovernable situation. Fantastic. Well, good luck is all I can say. Uh, because <laughs> good luck to all of us, I think. It's not as if your yeah. situation exactly is much right. better than ours, to be honest. So, No, <laughs> no that's, that's true. Exactly that's right. true. Although no, nobody contending for, for, for UK leadership is planning on, on approaching 90 anytime soon. So uh, at least you've got that going and for nor, you. And nor has anyone contending for UK leadership you know, kind of threatened to overthrow the government either. Exactly. So, <laughs> so I think we know our future. Yes, we, all have, we all have our challenges. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, thank you so much for sparing the time and for tolerating my increasingly popular <laughs> coffee shop sounds. You must enjoy but the coffee it, shop. It's wonderful. I, I, I may transition to a cocktail very enjoy. soon. So, Danny, what do you think? So the thing that I said really stuck in my craw, really actually stuck in my craw, the idea that this is about Brexit, 
that Brexit is somehow a big disappointment to the vast mass of British voters, that Boris lied about Brexit. I didn't touch on it because it wasn't there was no point in dragging Alan through the ridiculous allegations. But one of these articles that, that you and I read in the run-up to this insinuated that somehow Boris had met with some sketchy Russians and the sketchy Russians had in fact given possibly given him encouragement and that possibly the sketchy Russians had played some role in Brexit and that this was all Boris's fault and that the British people were just sick and tired of that. That is so disconnected from the reality of what happened. It's crazy. Not because these sketchy things may not have happened, because as we've seen, Boris Johnson has the judgment of a you know 12-year-old schoolboy, but because Brexit was overwhelmingly supported by the British public. And I don't think that they had, there is a lot of buyer's remorse there. Look, I don't think that we could have done anything to deliver on Brexit more because the economy would still be in the same position it is regardless. But because of all the crises happening in the world and COVID, why have we not pursued a free trade agreement with Great Britain? You know the answer to that, because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are against free trade. And while Donald Trump may have wanted to make an exception to his ideological purity on that question, haha, in fact, I think he would have had a very hard time with the votes. I think he would have had... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Donald Trump negotiated free trade agreements with Mexico and Canada, Japan and South Korea on during his watch. They were agreements that had lots of protections for American workers, more so than traditional trade agreements have. But there's no reason why you couldn't have negotiated an agreement with the Great Britain, because like Japan, like Canada, unlike Mexico, it's a like economy. You don't need it doesn't require a lot of protections together, like, you know, like in the NAFTA, in the new NAFTA, in the USMCA, there's a requirement that certain number of products have to be made by workers making $16 an hour or more in order to protect jobs here in the country. That wouldn't be an issue with Great Britain because it's a like economy with people making similar wages. So it's not like you're dealing with a with a third world country that you're trying to negotiate with that are going to steal all our jobs. It's just, I just think there's no excuse. Okay, Mr. Know-it-all. No, okay. I just think, well, then what why? I'm, saying, then I'm why? saying there's no excuse for it. There's no excuse for Trump not doing it. And there's certainly no excuse for Biden not doing it. But Biden is actually the interesting thing is Donald Trump did a lot more uh, for in terms of negotiating trade agreements with our allies around the world than Joe Biden has, who criticized him for his protectionism. You know, I just listed uh, three major agreements with four countries. What three trade deals has Joe Biden negotiated? None. Are there even any under underway in any serious way? So I guess my point is just it's a failure of both. It's not a political point. It's a failure of the Trump administration. It's a failure of the Biden administration. Why the hell have we not negotiated a free trade agreement with Great Britain? It's like a two minute decision in the first minutes for coffee. <laughs> this shouldn't be hard. <laughs> you already used that line on Alan. It's a good line. But yes, it's another I... Rumsfeld line. <laughs> <laughs> but look, look. I... I know. I don't disagree with you about about the free trade question. I don't disagree with you about where the fault may lie because I don't know enough about it. But the one thing I will say is the other thing that struck me in this conversation was what is wrong with the Conservative Party in the UK? They are about to raise corporate taxes. Why? You quoted at length from that Wall Street Journal editorial. Because they're not conservative. Right. They're not conservative. This is This is Europe's disease. 
there are no conservative parties. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And, and it is interesting to me that England, despite Brexit, has the European disease. It's amazing. So like, I mean, people don't realize, and especially because it's called the conservative party, that people assume it's conservative. The whole political spectrum in Europe is to the left of us. The conservative party in Great Britain includes people we would consider, you know, close to Bernie Sanders. And the left in the, the Labour Party is even further to the left. It includes, you know, outright Marxists. Uh, and anti-Semites, among other things, you know, but we don't have to get into that rabbit hole, you know. Well, to be fair, they've they've seen off Corbyn, thank God. Okay, but yes, they tolerated him for an awfully long time. I mean, time. but he's but no, he's a listen, Marxist. Right. He's, an, he's an out and out Marxist. Um, so you know, the whole political yeah. spectrum is shifted to the left in the UK and in, in Europe generally. And so you know, this is uh, it's a when you look at what conservative parties do when they come into power in Europe, and it just boggles the mind from our American perspective. Yep. I know. Where's Maggie Thatcher when we need her? We need the Iron Lady back. She's dead. Along with most of the Iron Ladies of America and men, unfortunately. All right, folks, thank you for listening. We thought this was really a worthwhile conversation. What happens in the UK is hugely important to the United States. And even though there are a lot of terrible things that have happened in the interim, terrible, truly terrible things like the assassination of Shinzo Abe, Nonetheless, the reality is Britain is our closest ally, our closest friend. We are virtually inseparable, even according to the Biden administration. And so keeping on top of what's happening there is absolutely vital for us in Washington. With that, we'll see you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.